How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Amy, for sharing that. Thank you for sharing and giving as you support the ministry here faithfully. The Lord returns that to you in abundance. It's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to spend some time in the Word studying and applying what we learn from the Word. And we are grateful that you're here. If you're a guest here with us, we're glad that you're here. We hope the fellowship has been a blessing to you. We hope now the teaching will be. And uh, this is a time for those who have little ones up through grade four to be dismissed to Children's Church if you would like them to be. You're more than welcome to keep them with you as well. We love, we have a lot of young families here. We love children. They can stay, they can go, whatever you'd prefer. If you'd like them to go, they'll go downstairs through graded uh, Children's Church and you can follow the, the herd down there and make sure you just remember to pick them up when we're all done, all right? If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Will you do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We are in a continuing study, if you're new with us today, a continuing study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, letters really from Paul to the Corinthian church. We've labeled the entire study, both books, God's plan for a healthy church. As you may be aware, if you've studied 1st and 2nd Corinthians at all, you know that Paul had to deal with a number of issues in the church, church things that still pop up in the church. And so as we go through, and maybe it's uh, preventative for us, maybe it's corrective, and the Lord applies that as he sees fit. But in particular, as we've begun this section, Freedom in Christ, as you can see in your notes in the bulletin, uh, the church and those who minister. And Paul is going to do some very uh, interesting things today as he takes us through uh, this section in his letter to the Corinthians. So look in your Bible this morning, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. And we began a section of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth about three weeks ago, that begins in chapter 8, and we've kind of divided these, uh, these letters up based on topic, and Paul, of course, is correcting some things that are going on there, and so all these things have to do with uh, what's going on in the church, and then how Paul is correcting those things, so errors in regard to some things, and then how Paul will correct them, in particular, in chapter 8, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1, we've begun to see Paul deal with freedom in Christ, and in particular, the errors that have popped up regarding to Christian liberty. And we're coming off a very important part as it deals with the liberty in Christ every Christian has by virtue of their relationship to Jesus by faith. And so liberty or freedom, if you will, to make a decision in a gray area in life, that's a place where the Bible doesn't specifically give a command, either positive or negative, for us to do or not to do it. And so these are gray areas that come up. They are gray areas that you will face and have faced and will continue to face as you live this life on earth amongst the body of Christ and are faced with these types of things from time to time. And they are decisions that have to be made that may only be need to be made for that particular time. They may be things that govern your life from that time on. But whatever the case may be, Paul writes to them and he gives this very important principle that he wants the church to come away with, and I gave you a number of other principles too, and you can check with them online to help you make these kinds of decisions, but Paul overall gives this overarching principle that is so important as it deals with Christian liberty. And he writes to them and he says, you know, when you're getting ready to make your decision on one of these gray area issues, the first question you need to ask is, who will my decision affect? And that's the overarching thing as you think about Christian liberty. Paul says, who will your decision affect? Because your liberty is limited by love. And that's what we finished last time as we finished chapter 8. So in order to make sure you're operating in love, ask this question as you talk about these gray areas uh, to the Lord and, and with 
uh, perhaps your family or whoever you're interacting with, ask this question of yourself, well, what I do to file a weaker brother's conscience? Because that's one of the questions Paul uh, asked them to ask, and he gives them some very important guidelines about not doing that specific thing. What will what I do in my gray area issue defile another weaker, weaker believer's conscience? Or, if I do this thing that I want to do, will someone else stumble? Or, will what I do ruin them? Those three things, stumbling, uh, uh, defiling, and ruining, are the three things Paul says can happen when the only uh, restrictions on our freedom in Christ are no restriction at all, just whatever we want to do. The only considerations are just, if I want to do it, I'll do it. And that's really the prevailing attitude amongst the, Christian, uh, the Corinthian believers here. And so Paul just want to make sure that they understand there's more to it than just, I'm free in Christ and I can do whatever I want. There are some restrictions, and they're restrictions that come about by love for the weaker believer, the weaker believer's conscience. Will they stumble? Will I ruin them? And if the answer is yes, then I'm sinning against Christ. So my decision is, Paul says, I won't do it because I love them more and I love my freedom because Christ died for them, and it's very important that I help them grow. So he states that principle in chapter 8, and then he's going to illustrate that principle. As we said before, I gave you that outline a couple of weeks ago. He's going to illustrate that principle that, uh, well, what will I do, will what I do affect someone else? How will it affect them? And it's limited by love. He's going to illustrate that in chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10, verse 13, and then he's going to come back and he's going to apply it to their specific situation starting in chapter 14 and all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. So that's basically the outline Paul has. We'll hang our hats on those things too, and so just work our way through as Paul has decided to bring us through. Now let's read our passage together. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And then we'll come back and we will begin to work our way through it word by word. Look at verse 1, and I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, and I'll give you verse Q so you can stay with me. You can also find a copy of, those, of that Bible in the, in the chairs in front of you around you, okay? So I start with, am I not free? Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse 2. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Verse 6. Or do only Barnabas and I have a right to, not have a right to refrain from working? Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Verse 8. I'm not speaking those things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, 
And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Stop right there. Now, as we finished reading that, if you're thinking, hmm, that's an interesting passage for a pastor to be reading and preparing to teach on a Sunday morning. You've just tapped into just a fraction of my own thoughts as we have been approaching this section of scripture for the last several weeks. And I will admit to you at the very beginning that this is one of the more difficult passages I have to teach through. It's hard for me to teach through different types of passages for different reasons. Some passages are hard to teach through because they're complex. Uh, the wording or ideas are hard to outline and compartmentalize and communicate in a cohesive manner. And every biblical preacher understands that. Some things are just hard because they're complex. And some passages are hard to teach through because it may deal with a theme or a sin area where I don't have victory, and that can be very convicting. And every minister of the gospel knows that feeling as well. And sometimes the passage is difficult to teach through because it deals with how a church is to interact with her pastors. This is one of those passages. It deals with paying a pastor. Now this is a passage I wouldn't choose to speak about if I were a topical teacher. And as I am in my seventh year with you, and I've never spoken on this topic, you understand that. But as you know, I'm an exegetical expository preacher, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, comparing scripture with scripture, asking the questions, what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And what's the last part, beloved? How does that apply to me or to today's uh, situation? And I have committed to give you the whole counsel of God, and I believe the Holy Spirit has a reason why we go through different passages at different times, because as I begin to teach through a book, I'm not sure exactly where I'll be at any particular date in the calendar as I look forward, because I don't know how long it'll take to get through any particular section. As I've joked with you in the past, I'm very good at taking a very good sermon and making a very long, poor series, all right, because I just have so many extra things I want to throw in there in between, and we just don't get to the place I think we should get to. So um, the bottom line is really, I wouldn't choose to speak about these things, but because the Holy Spirit takes us through the passages at the times he wants to, I'll just leave it up to him, which means that we're in chapter 9, and we've just finished chapter 8, and we're going to be in chapter 10 in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and go through it. Now, I would say to you t this, I know that there is a risk of someone who's new with us today, uh, this morning, you know, leaning over to their spouse or thinking in their mind or elbowing the person next to them. That's all preachers ever talk about is giving you money. You're all just the same, just like every television preacher, every preacher I've ever seen. They just want to give people to give them money. Now, I would hope that you would ask around later if you're new, and hopefully someone will confirm that that is definitely not the case here. But by way of introduction, though, I'd like to set the record straight as we begin to go through this passage and say that what I'm going to teach through this morning does not apply to me. I receive the love and grace of Berean abundantly. I receive more than I'm worthy of, much more than I would ever ask for, far more than I deserve. And so this is not an application to my situation, just so we clear the air there. And I'll remind you of that as we get through a little bit, because it does get pretty intense as this preaching goes through, okay? So I'm not talking about me. There's no 
shielded remarks that somehow apply to my situation. Now, as we said, what Paul is about to do here is illustrate the principle that we developed from chapter 8. And that principle is the freedom to limit your freedom. The freedom to limit your freedom by love. Paul's going to illustrate that in his own self, and he's going to do that uh, by letting them understand what the principle looks like in practice. And so he's going to let them see two illustrations. And he's going to start with himself, and then he's going to move on to chapter 10, and he's going to use the nation of Israel as the second example. So first Paul is going to illustrate what he had the right to do and didn't do, and then he's going to use the nation of Israel in chapter 10. Now obviously, if Paul's going to use himself as an illustration, then he's going to show that he had a freedom or he had a liberty that he could have chosen to do or use, but he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because someone could have been offended. And the church, really, and the freedom he could have chosen uh, was the right to monetary support from the church. That's the freedom he could have chosen, and he chose not to accept it from this church in Corinth. He had the right to expect a Corinthian church to pay him money for his ministry and provide for his needs. But as we've talked about before, Paul chose to be a tent maker uh, all the way through his life to earn his own living and provide for his own needs, never exercising the right he had to ask for support. And as you noticed, as we just read through this passage just a moment ago, Paul uses the first 14 verses to give the reasons why he had the freedom to choose to be supported by the church, which, of course, has application for the modern church as well. And then he is going to use, take verse 15 through 18 and show why he chose to limit his freedom. And so that's kind of how that's going to work out, both in the long term and the short term. Remember, Paul is springing off an attitude of some of the, Corinthian, some of the guys in the Corinthian church who were thinking these types of things and saying these types of things. You know, we're free to eat anything we want. We're free to do anything we want. We can go eat meat offered to idols. It's no big deal because I'm free to do it. Uh, we can go up to one of the pagan feasts, and, and we don't have to do what they do, but we can still eat their food, and it's not a big deal. And Paul confirms all that to be true. There's no idol. There's no other god but God. We went through all of that. I showed you a bunch of different uh, slides and a bunch of different backgrounds of the false religions of the world, uh, Hinduism, Shintoism, uh, uh, Buddhism, Islam, all of that stuff, and we talked about all of that, okay? And so the bottom line is, uh, if someone doesn't like that, what they were thinking is, then that's their problem, not ours, because we have the freedom to do whatever we want. That's the prevailing attitude inside the church uh, in Corinth. So coming off that attitude, which Paul had to correct, he has a few opening remarks to establish his authority. So look back at verse 1, if you would, of chapter 9. And here's what he says. He says this, Am I not free? So Paul says, I understand this freedom thing. Uh, I understand the freedom to do whatever I want. Paul says, I'm qualified to understand freedom in Christ. Am I any less than you in my liberty? So you can read it any number of ways. Am I any less than you in my liberty? Am I not free? I mean, I understand what I'm telling you to do. I'm understanding how I'm telling you to limit your freedom. Don't I understand that already? In fact, I understand it really well because am I not an apostle? Paul says, listen, have I not been especially appointed by Christ? Don't you think I understand my liberty like you? Maybe I understand it a little better, perhaps, than you do? In any case, the answer, which was supposed to be rhetorical, yes, in case that wasn't a rhetorical yes answer, he says this. He goes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord, he says? So he's establishing a little authority here. He wants to make sure he, they understand he has the right to talk about it, and he understands what he's asking them to do very well. So two ways to verify his apostleship. And you remember perhaps in Acts 1, verse 22, where it says, whoever was to be appointed as an apostle to take up the place of Judas had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. You had to see Jesus. 
And Paul had that experience. In fact, that's what he says. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And you know that in Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the Damascus road on his way to persecute a few Christians, and the Lord stops him, introduces himself to Paul. Paul sees the blazing glory of the risen Christ and submits to him and asks, what do you want me to do? And the Lord blinds Paul temporarily, and you know the story, and gives him some instructions. So actually, physically, he sees the risen Christ. On to Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Paul is planting the church in Corinth, of all places. He's very discouraged. He's had a very difficult time. The Lord came to Paul at night by a vision and encouraged Paul at a very opportune moment. And he told Paul not to be afraid to speak because he was with Paul and he had many people in the city. Remember, we went through that as we introduced this whole section in Corinth. And so he sees the resurrected Jesus again in a vision. And then in Acts 22, verse 17, Paul was in Jerusalem praying in the temple. And Paul says this in Acts 22, he says this. He says, uh, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. Verse 18, I saw him saying to me, that's Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul's thinking, of course they will. And then he says in verse uh, 19, he says, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. In other words, listen, they're going to they're gonna relate to me because I used to be uh, dead set against the way. So it's not going to be a big deal. But the Lord says, listen, go, for I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh, the Lord comes to Paul in a trance. Uh, the trance comes on to Paul. Jesus comes in a trance, has a conversation with him, and he again sees the Lord and talks with him in Jerusalem. So when he says, then, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Uh, the answer is, yes, he has. And then, Paul verifies it a second way. He just wants them to look around. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? As the Lord is speaking to Ananias about Paul in Acts chapter 9, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. He's a minister to the Gentiles, the Lord told Ananias. Go and speak to him. Give them the training I'm telling you to do. Uh, so on their first missionary journey in Poseidon Antioch, Paul tells the audience he is speaking to in Acts 13, he says that very thing about himself. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. So Paul says, listen, if you have any doubt about my apostleship, about my right to talk to you about this, about my understanding about freedom in Christ, understand this, um, know that I've seen the resurrected Christ. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles and here you are. So he's talking to the Corinthian church, the Gentile church. You're established. I established you. Don't you verify my ministry? And kind of following up from his previous statement, he says to them, verse 2, if, others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, if you want to say that I'm not really an apostle in other cases, I've certainly proven that I am to you guys. I brought the message to you. You're the seal of my apostleship. Sphragase, uh, that's a, a noun that is just something to authenticate, uh, a signet ring used to stamp an image into wax. If you were in, in the first century shipping your produce somewhere, you would seal up the bag or jar and put your seal into some wax placed on the product to assure the buyer that the item was legitimately yours. Paul says, I'm that. If you were writing a letter and you wanted someone to know that it was an authentic letter from you, you'd seal it with wax, put your seal on it, and the seal was a mark of genuineness, of confirmation, of proof, of authentication. Paul says, you're that to me. 
Think about who you are. Think about the time I spent among you and the impact that that made. He says, you're a living seal to prove to everyone that I'm the real deal. The fact that you are in the Lord, that you're redeemed in the family of God, the fact that you are uh, a, a, uh, a Gentile church should be proof enough that I'm an apostle because I brought you the message, look at yourself, you're my seal. So then Paul says, as an apostle, then, don't I have liberty? Because you know I'm an apostle, you know I'm, a, I'm an apostle, I've seen the Lord, all of that stuff, don't you know I have as much freedom as you, and I might even understand that a little bit better than you do? And the answer is, of course. And so Paul has set up the standard. He understands freedom probably better than they do. Now look at verse 3, and we're going to see Paul make the transition to the questions brought to him by the Corinthians. Now, as we started in chapter 7, I told you that it becomes, it becomes an interaction between the church. Paul received a, a letter from back from the church. It had some questions in it. And Paul from time to time says concerning what you wrote, or you'll just see the question there, and then he answers it. And so you can, from the text, pull out the question and then get Paul's answer to the question. So look at verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. So obviously there's some examination going on from the Corinthian church with Paul in the microscope or, or they're looking closely at him. In other words, there's some questions asked. Questions that appear to have an edge to them. Because the word is a word used in a judicial sense. It's a courtroom word. People who ask questions then in a critical, accusatory manner. Uh, they were around in Paul's time. They're around today too. And they were questions and critiques and accusations concerning Paul's right to be supported by the church. That's what it's orientating around. Now, just like in chapter 7, where Paul corrects some misinformation about singleness and marriage, and by answering some questions, uh, we come away with principles to guide singleness, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Just like Paul's answering questions, but we come away with those principles that apply to us. And then in chapter 8, well, Paul corrects a kind of free-for-all attitude regarding freedom in Christ. But we come away with an important principle that puts a limit on freedom. Here we are in chapter 9, and Paul's going to illustrate the freedom to limit your freedom. But we're going to come away with principles for supporting a pastor or a missionary or a minister. And so Paul's going to deal with questions and criticisms that are directed towards him. But we're going to come away with some basic instruction to the church about why this is important, why a minister is worthy of support of the church. So look with me in chapter 4, and you're going to see what he's doing, and we're really going to see really eight examples Paul's going to give, and we'll get as far as we can uh, through those eight examples. But he's going to answer their critical questions and give them an illustration of what it looks like to limit your freedom. And he's going to go through these reasons, and he's really, uh, he's really saying at the end, just to foreshadow a little bit, so he goes through these reasons, they have some critical uh, questions coming to Paul, he's going to go through these reasons, and just to foreshadow this a little bit, he's saying, hey, I have the same liberty you do, and yet, he says, I set it aside. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now, as an apostle, I have liberty, I have freedom, I have the freedom to do whatever I want, and one of the things I have the freedom to do, he says, is to ask you to support me. And yet I set my liberty aside, Paul says. I set my freedom aside because I don't want to offend somebody. I'm not demanding you to do anything that I haven't done myself. That's the issue, okay? So he's going to use that as an example of how he set aside his personal freedom. And then he illustrates it. And he addresses three questions from the church, and we can kind of pull out from the text, and then he's going to answer them and get to the heart of the issue of, free, of his freedom, starting in verse 4. Look there, if you would, with me. He says this, Do we not have the right to eat and drink. Now, from time to time, Paul brings a little sarcasm to bear, okay? And this is one of those times. Paul says, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? Their question was likely then, we can kind of extract this from the text, if he's, 
answering these, uh, those who examine him, his defense, he says, against those who examine him. The question was likely, shouldn't you take care of yourself? Why should we be burdened? That's the question to Paul. Why can't you just take care of yourself? And Paul's answer, I have some needs just like you do, and I have the right to ask you to take care of them. So he's saying or implying, you mean I have no right to food and drink? And that's really important because that's exactly the issue he was dealing with back in chapter 8, wasn't it? They could eat, they could drink, whatever they wanted. They can go and do it. It costs money, of course, to go and do that, to buy that meat, to buy that drink. And they were really enjoying it, living it up, don't care what everybody thinks about it. Paul says, don't I have the right to eat and drink? The food and, and all of that that they were demanded they have the right to do. You have the right to live it up. You have the right to drink and eat what you want. All that costs money. Don't I have the right? So I have some of the needs just like you do. I have the right to ask you to take care of them. That's the answer, see? They're asking him, hey, can't you just take care of yourself? I mean, what's the big deal? Now look at verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers and the Lord and Cephas? And Paul's saying, you know, again, don't, you know, don't I have the freedom to enjoy what you enjoy? The question was likely, can't you stay single? I mean, you're much more useful to us single. I mean, we can get a lot more out of you if you don't have a wife. Not as expensive to send you places or whatever. Can't you just stay single? And Paul's answer, of course, to them is, you know, I have the right to have support from you, not only for me, but for a family if I wanted to. That's Paul's answer back to those who examine him. Paul says, this is my liberty. This is my right to ask that of you. And that is relevant principle for the church today. It's the church's responsibility to support its pastors, its missionaries, its ministers, and its staff, and make sure that they can take care of their family. And so Paul says, listen, as they criticize him and say, listen, can't you just stay single? Paul says, you know, I have the right to support from you, not just for me, but I could have brought a lot of wife. just like the rest of the apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Peter. I could do that too. And then Paul gets a little more sarcastic again. He says, look at verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? So you just pick us out all by ourselves. We're the only ones that have to keep on working. Your brothers of the Lord do it. Peter does it. He's allowed to uh, have support. He's allowed to bring a along a family, a wife. Are you saying that only Barnabas and I have no right to stop working? And so you can extract then, as they bring this criticism to Paul, they, he's examining Paul, uh, the question, criticism from the Corinthian church is kind of a repeat, kind of said in a different way. Why can't you just work and take care of yourself? I mean, you are good at what you're doing. I mean, it takes a lot of pressure off of us if you can just keep on working. You can make a good living as a tanner, and Paul's answer to them is, listen, I have freedom to refrain from working a secular job, just like the rest of the apostles, just like the brothers of Christ, just like uh, Peter. I don't have to keep working a secular job. I had the freedom to stop doing that and expect you to make up the difference. And again, that's the principle that applies today. The modern church has obligation to provide for its staff. And at this point, I want to pause and remind you to, rem to remember my opening comments, okay? I'm not talking about me, all right? The application is here, but you have taken care of me. I'm very grateful and humbled, and you've been very generous to me, supporting me, my family, and I thank you for that. But these are important principles covering these things, and we need to deal with them, okay? So Paul's saying, I have the right to ask for food and drink. Uh, that would be, you know, daily necessities, sustenance. I have the right to ask you to support my wife and my family if I so choose. I have the right to do that. It's my freedom to do that. I have the right not to have to work a secular job, to be a tent maker. And, and literally, Paul was a tent maker. That's where we get that, that word, someone who works a secular job and then is able to work in the ministry. Paul actually made tents. Uh, Paul says, I have the right to refrain from working at anything except the ministry. I have the right to do that. And here's the thing, Paul is giving these out by way of a question, but they're statements of fact, see? 
Don't I have the right? And what's the answer? Yes, I do. Don't I have the right to eat and drink? Yes, I do. Don't I have the right to stop working? I do have the right to stop working. Don't I have the right to expect the church to take care of me and my family? Yes, I do, Paul says. So all those answers are yes. See, he's saying by way of question because he's having to deal with criticism that's coming from the Corinthian church. But the fact of the matter is the answers are yes, he does. I have the freedom to do this. And he's going to give us examples in a moment, and we're going to get as far as we can in those eight examples. But the first three examples are found in, chapter, in verse 7. Look at verse 7, if you would. And because we've laid this foundation of what's going on here and this limit to freedom, we can move more rapidly through these texts because Paul's just illustrating the principle that we understand, which is the freedom to limit my freedom. And Paul's going to use himself as an example. As you, you can see, that's what's happening. Look at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? So once again, now we're getting some examples here Paul's going to bring to the surface. The first three are right here. Who at, at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? So three examples. What are they? Soldier, farmer, shepherd. And the reason that he uses those examples gives us a principle. So once again, as Paul goes through the example, we extract a principle that's applicable to why is it important and why is it an obligation for the church to take care of those who minister in the church. And here it is. It's the usual custom. Okay? It's the usual custom. In other words, out of labor comes the living. That's what we see as we look around us. Or cared for out of occupation. Three examples, soldier, farmer, shepherd. Now, normally soldiers are paid to fight. Things that are needed to sustain them are provided. Uh, I might say in America anyway, at the bare minimum. Okay, and we have a number of soldiers here, and we know that, that uh, sometimes this barely covers what is supposed to be covered. There are exceptions, of course, to any coverage. Perhaps the Continental Army, you could make an excuse there. But if you're trying to figure out why, you know, reasons why soldiers don't pay for their own way, perhaps that's the wrong direction you need to be going, all right? So anyway, uh, typically, though, uh, a man works as a farmer, takes care of his needs uh, by what the land produces. He gets his living from farming. The same is true from a shepherd or a rancher. That's the idea. That's the usual custom. Out of labor comes a living or, or cared for out of occupation. And Paul, Paul's obvious point is, listen, the same holds true for the servant of God. That's the illustration. It's an easy illustration. The servant of God should be equally cared for out of his occupation. And it's Paul's right. He says, I had the right to do this. It's the church's responsibility. And that's also how the world works. Okay? So you can see that. You can look around and see how the world works. Now, look at verse 8. Paul says an interesting thing here. He says this. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? And this really implies a negative answer. In other words, I'm not just speaking in human terms. I'm not just doing this to draw attention to human customs or human reasoning. It's not just about a soldier, a farmer, or a shepherd. And then he brings his fourth reason. Or does not the law also say these things? And what's the answer? Yes, it does. Okay. The question implies a positive answer. The example is the law of God gives us the same understanding. So Paul says, I'm not saying this just to draw attention to the fact that we pay a soldier or we pay a farmer or we pay a shepherd. He says, listen, I'm saying this because the law of God also says this very thing. Now look at the example in full, and we'll come back and, and pull out the principle. Look at verse 9, if you would. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. 
I'll stop right there. Now, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. And principle number two is this. God is concerned about people, and in namely here, those who lead the church. In other words, he gave the law for people. That's Paul's point. Paul says, I'm not just speaking about a soldier or a farmer or a shepherd. I'm not just trying, trying to draw attention to human uh, tradition. The law also says these things. And God's not concerned about oxen, he says. The law was given for people. Now, just to be clear, Deuteronomy 25.4, if you look back there, the topic isn't even animals, okay? He throws that law in there, but he's not talking about animals. He's talking about people. But it was a general law to help correct a greedy habit that some of the Israelites had learned in, from the Egyptians. What would happen is they would put a muzzle on the ox as they were stepping on the grain to break it out of the husk and not let the oxen swoop down and take anything from it because they wanted to save it all for themselves. So it was a greedy habit. The Lord says, don't do it. As he's setting up his law for the people of Israel, he says, don't put a muzzle on an ox while he's working for you amongst the grain. But inside the context of the passage in Deuteronomy, he's not even talking about animals. He's talking about people. And so according to Paul and the context of the verse, it's an analogy. In other words, Paul repeats God's command and says, in the same obvious way that you would care about a dumb animal, care about people at least as much, and in particular, those that lead the church. That's the analogy. Now, at the end of verse 9, it says this, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? In other words, you know, are all the oxen supposed to get around and get a copy of Deuteronomy 25.4 and, and read it, make sure their masters are doing right, you know, demand all their rights and to, to take off the muzzle or whatever. Is that what God's talking about? Paul says, obviously not, okay? Then who's it for? Well, according to Paul, God didn't have an ox in mind. Now, just so that you know, God's not anti-ox, okay? But he isn't a charter member of PETA either. Um, animals aren't eternal and neither is the earth. And many of you hear me say that over and over again. But I think it's important to say it to combat the general principles and the Pope's, you know, emphasis, particularly this week, about how the earth is eternal. And that's really what's implied. The earth is eternal. And so, you know, let's make sure that men suffer so the earth can last and all of that. It's just ridiculous. So it, as we've seen before, the earth and the animals and the resources are made for man. Okay. And I say that a lot because... I want you to hear it over all the rhetoric that continues to go along that somehow man's the one messing up the earth, okay? The earth was made for men, and so were the animals and the resources. They were given to men, okay? Without men, the Lord wouldn't have had to make the earth. It's for us, okay? All right. I think you get where I am, all right? And I think I can support that pretty well. So if you want to get into the debate, let's, let's go ahead. But I think if you're going to lose, all right? Now, here's the thing. God does care for his creation, all right, in balance. You know, Psalm 104, verse 24, this is a great passage just to illustrate that. You know, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There's the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are ships there, the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You, got, you give to them, they gather it up, you open your hand, they're satisfied with good. You hide your face, they're dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. The Lord's in charge of all that. He's not anti his creation, he loves his creation. It displays some of his power, doesn't it? And he has dominion over all of it. And he opens up his hand and he feeds them. And he turns his face away and they die, okay? You send forth your spirit, they're created, and you renew the face of the ground. The Lord's in charge of all that. He's not anti-earth, he's not anti-oxen, he's not anti-his creation. He's for it, and he takes care of it. But it's not more important than men. 
Psalm 147, verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth. And Lynchburg has been provided for over the last three or four days. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. The Lord takes care of those things. He's for them. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? God's not anti-animal. God takes care of the animals. But the purpose of the verse is, Paul says, is not to relate to an oxen. Okay? He's not talking, he was talking about people. If an ox trading out grain uh, ought to be able to scoop, swoop down and eat if it's hungry, and he was just redirecting their greed. Don't do that. Don't, don't muzzle the ox. But the principle here is that Paul wants the Corinthian church to see, as Paul expresses to them his freedom, to expect this. And this is it. God's concerned about those who lead the church and that they should be provided for. And Paul shows it to be a long-reaching biblical principle. You go way back to Genesis. God says, as he was, the Lord says, God was concerned about people way back then. And he translates it right up till now. And Paul applies it right here to one of the reasons why the church has an obligation to support those who minister in it. Now look at me at verse 10. We'll get to two more reasons here, if you would. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So it's coming right off of uh, verse 9. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? And the answer is no. He's not concerned in this verse about oxen, although we see he's concerned about what he's created. Okay? So God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Then Paul says, yes, for our sake it was written. So Paul makes it clear. When God made the illustration back in Genesis, he was already speaking forward to this area where Paul was going to make the application. Okay? Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. But God's concerned about people. Two more examples. Plowmen, those are the guys who are planting. Threshers, those are the guys who are processing the harvested grain. And so that's another example Paul uses, another reason why it's important. And, and the reason he uses these examples is both these, that's the plowman and the thresher, have a hope for something in the future. As they're doing the job they're doing, if they're planting or if they're threshing, they have a hope for something in the future, and indeed, it would come because they were planting and it would eventually sprout and it would be harvested and somebody would thresh it, and they had a hope for that because that was the cycle the Lord set up, and they had a hope for the future, hope for the servant. And so Paul's principle number three is this. A minister has the right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward. That's the illustration, okay? And so Paul says, listen, two more examples. A plowman. And the thresher. Those guys have hope. And I'm using this, Paul says, because I had a right to have the same hope. That out of labor comes reward. In verse 11, Paul makes a direct application. Now look at this. And I, he gets, once again, very sarcastic. And you kind of see the attitude in the church just from some of the questions. Okay, He says this. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he gets right down to brass tacks, doesn't he? If we're sowing spiritual things among you, is it too much to ask if we reap material things from you? That's really shooting straight with the Corinthians, isn't it? I mean, he's getting right down to where it is. That's the attitude. I mean, the questions are kind of around, the beating around the bush. They're saying, you know, can't you just keep on working? I mean, you've got a good job. What's the big deal? You know, can't you just stay single? It's much easier for you to be single, and you're much more useful to us. I mean, all these criticisms, right? But he just shoots straight with them. Paul says, using really an agrarian metaphor, if we sowed, okay, life-transforming, eternal, everlasting, permanent things, 
Is it too much, once again, some sarcasm, is it too much to ask to reap material things? Temporary, momentary, passing things from you. Paul's words. The example is this. Is this unreasonable? That's Paul's example. Is it unreasonable to ask that? Paul says, is it a big deal for you to do that? And the implication is, no, of course it shouldn't be. So the principle number four is be generous. Be generous. Is it a big deal, he says? But so many times I think the mentality of Christians in history has been this. Make sure the servant of God can barely make it. Don't give him too much. Let's see how much we can trim. If we need to trim, we can certainly trim there. After all, I mean, they're serving God, you know, and they don't need that much, and God's rewarding them anyway. I mean, I mean what, they're, what are they going to do with the extra anyway? Well, I don't know. Um, maybe they would pay a bill or fix something, or, or maybe they would replace their car. I don't know. What would you do with the extra? That's exactly what the minister will do with the extra. See, and the point is, is not just, you know, making sure we're not paying them too much. That's, that's not the point, okay? There's a stewardship there on both ends, you know, not just on his end. There's stewardship on both ends. And that end, the church's end, is the one Paul's taking to task here, see? And the point is generosity. Remember 2 Corinthians 9, 6. We went through this several years ago. We're going to get there again in a couple years. But... Um, in a year maybe or so, Lord willing. Um, but 2 Corinthians 9, 6, remember this. Paul is talking uh, to them. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's given an example of Macedonian believers. And he says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now if you've been with us, we broke this all down. I won't take time to do that today. But it's pretty clear even without the breaking, uh, us breaking it down. Okay, Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And here's what Jim says all the time before we take up the offering. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's where it's, lo that's where it's located. Okay? So God likes the attitude. He likes generosity. He thinks it's important. He loves, actually, a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good debt, or every good deed. So the bottom line is this, you know, God's able to make all grace abound to you. You're generous. God's able to give it back. God takes care of those things in a number of different ways, as we talked about before. Not just necessarily money coming back, but perhaps, but also other things, so that you always have a sufficiency in everything, and you may have an abundance for every good deed. So people look at what the Lord gives us kind of like a pie. And so I take a section of pie, and I give it here, and I give a section of pie to the church, and I give a section. But that's not exactly how the Lord describes it. I, I like to describe it more like a silo, where the Lord's pouring in, in the top, and you're scooping it out the bottom. And many of you understand that, don't you? Because you've been generous and you've known the Lord to pour it back in. And you don't know where it came from. But there it is. And it was more than enough. And the car didn't break down. You didn't have to go to the doctor or whatever it is. Because the Lord's able to supply for all sufficiency for you. See? So generosity is the issue. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What's the answer? It shouldn't be. Is that unreasonable? No, Paul says. Be generous. But the idea Paul wants to get across is, you want to be blessed as a church? Be generous. Do you want to have all sufficiency in everything? Then be generous. Do you want to be blessed as an individual? Then be generous. Be generous to missionaries. Be generous to ministers. Be generous to those who minister and labor among you, as well as those guests that come and minister in our midst. Be generous. Why? Because that's what the Lord desires. And it's not too much to ask, Paul says. As he deals with this critical attitude inside the church, he wants to make sure he makes this clear. I'm not just 
round in, going around the bush here, I want you to know I'm talking about the responsibility of the church to those who minister among them. Generosity should mark, uh, be the mark of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ because they first gave themselves to him and then he, because he gave himself up for them. And so that model is there to be generous. Now, here's a great example of a generous church, Philippians 4.15. We're going to wrap up in just a second here, but I want to give you this and let you leave with this. And you can pull this out from Paul's letter to them that they've been very generous to them. It says, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the beginning, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. So that gives you a little idea of what's going on in the New Testament church today. The Corinthians would have fallen into this, that category. They didn't help. Okay? Paul had the right to ask for it, but he didn't ask for it because he knew he'd just offend a whole bunch of weak believers there. But he says, listen, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, he says, just the Philippians. Verse 16, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So the Philippian church gate was very generous with Paul. That's the issue. Okay? Now verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So here's a letter of commendation. He says to the Philippians, you did it right. I wasn't looking for the gift, but you took care of it. And you were generous to me over and over. I was in Thessalonica. You sent one there. Epaphroditus brought one. You took care more than abundantly. You gave me way more than I needed, but I'm glad you sent it. You know why, he says? Because it shows the mark of your spirituality and because you've given more than you could have given. My God shall supply what? All your needs according to his riches and glory. You give more than you could have given. You were generous because you can't outgive God and the liberality and the generosity that those Philippians and those Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 9 extended towards the apostles was something very, very pleasing to God. And that's why, and that's the way it ought to be. And that's the example that Paul is drawing here for us to see. So let's wrap up for today. We're out of time. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 9, I have a right to give you this instruction because I'm an apostle. And I'm going to give you an, an illustration of that freedom to limit your freedom. And I'm going to use myself first. But in doing that, he's going to draw to their attention some very important principles both for the Corinthian church and for the modern church. Now, here's the questions he was dealing with. Shouldn't you take care of yourself? Why should we be burdened? Can't you be more useful as a single guy? You know, we can get more out of you that way. Can't you just stay single? I mean, instead of bringing a wife along? Why can't you just work and take care of yourself? You have a good job. And there's some coming in from the outside. So why do we have to be burdened? Paul says, listen, I have the right, the freedom to expect the Corinthian church to support me, for you to support me, he says. Principle number one, because it's the usual custom. That's what goes on in the world, and that's an example to the church. Principle number two, God is concerned about those who lead the church. He's not concerned necessarily about oxen, even though that illustration was about oxen. He was looking forward. Principle number three, the minister has the right and should be able to anticipate that out of labor comes reward just like the thresher, just like those who plant. And principle number four, is it too much to ask if we sowed 
eternal things with you that you sow back to us material things? In other words, no, it's not. Be generous with those who lead. Now we're going to pick up in verse 12 next time where Paul uh, begins to show them what was going on in the background as he was ministering among them. And he wants to correct their mindset. Next time he's going to say, look, this is what was going on. You weren't doing this and you had some critical things to say and this is how I was responding to you. I could have responded this way, but in my freedom not to, I responded this way. Not to your benefit and certainly not to your, your uh, accolade, but I did it this way because I didn't want to offend. So, once again, great passages, very, very practical for us, very uh, wonderful examples of what it looks like. We're going to get some more next time as you come back. Read ahead if you would, see where we're going, understand what Paul has to say. I think it'll uh, become very clear uh, what goes on and what should be going on uh, in, uh, over and against what goes on in lots of churches today. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer if we would. It's been great to be with you today and be in the Word today, and thank you for being patient listeners as we went through very difficult passages. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to look uh, deeply into your Word, to deal with things that are difficult for me to bring. Uh, even though you've blessed me abundantly here, it's still hard to hear, hard to say. Uh, it's hard to deal with these issues where uh, how the church should deal with their pastors and the pastor to teach it, but who else is supposed to do this? So, Lord, you've given us this job, and that's why you uh, want us to teach your word, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so, Lord, I thank you for bringing us here at this time. And, Father, I thank you for the wonderful uh, nature that Brian has, the, uh, the sacrifice that goes on here, the, the meeting of needs that goes on under the radar, the, the giving of things, that uh, temporal things that aren't important to minister and are pleasing in your sight. I pray that you'll multiply that more and more. Help us to be aware as we look at our budget, as we look at the things that are going on here, if we're not actively involved and sacrificially giving, that you'll bring that to our heart, that that's where we need to be. And join together with many of the others who've been so faithful over the years to make sure that the things happen here that are to happen, and in particular what's going on in these topics as we've dealt with here. And Father, I thank you again for the fellowship here. Thank you for what went on downstairs while we were teaching for the sacrifice of many teachers who, who spend time preparing lessons during the week after a busy week doing their jobs or caring for their family. Very grateful for their ministry and their sacrifice here. Thank you again, Father, for all that will go on this evening, the fun that we'll have in our Acts 246. Lord, may your name be glorified. May the fellowship be pleasing to you. May it be another opportunity for us to meet each other's needs and to minister to one another, uh, both in word and in deed. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.